Welcome to Salt and Light with Pastor Rodney Finch. Salt and Light is a radio outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Cary. Jesus, speak to me. Open your word and reveal your heart to me. Salt and Light is a series of verse-by-verse studies through the Bible, focusing on its practical application to our everyday lives. Salt and Light is recorded live at Calvary Chapel, Cary, in Apex, North Carolina. Stay tuned. At the end of the program, we will give you information on how to contact us, so be sure to have a pen and paper ready. Today, Pastor Rodney will be teaching from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 15. So grab your Bibles and follow along. Now with today's teaching, here's Pastor Rodney. 1 Samuel, chapter 1 through 7 is written about... Who saints? Samuel. It's on the screen for you. I don't know why everybody didn't say Samuel. I had to check to make sure. Y'all sound so tentative. Let me try it again. First Samuel chapter 1 through 7 is written about who? And first Samuel chapter 8 through 15 is written about who? And Saul is the first king of Israel. You know that in first Samuel chapter 16, verse 31 is written about David. I told you that First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles is a running commentary on the history of the nation of Israel. And I told you that First Samuel is a transition book from the time of Judges. Who's been with me in the book of Samuel? Okay, that's most of you. Then you do know that uh, uh, Samuel is a transition book from the time of the Judges to a time of the Kings and the Prophets. Uh, This book moves us into a time of monarchy and prophetic ministry. Samuel comes on the scene as the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. Let me give you a little background just for a refresher. Again, 1 Samuel is during the time of the judges. And it was during the time of the judges when the spiritual condition and the political atmosphere was at an all-time low. It was a dark time in Israel, so dark that God was not speaking to Israel. Uh, the spiritual leaders were corrupt, and every man was doing right in his own eyes. God's people were disobeying his word and not listening to God. And since man wasn't listening to God, God didn't bother to speak. First Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. Go ahead and take a peek there, if you will. The word of the Lord was rare, and there was no widespread revelation during this time. That lays the groundwork for Ichabod. Ichabod? means, anybody know? The glory has departed, you know that. If you were with us in chapter 14, which was the last time we were together, you know that the Philistines were mocking God and mocking God's people. And Jonathan had had enough in chapter 14. Go ahead and turn there with me in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Uh, The Philistines were mocking God and mocking God's people, and Jonathan had had enough. Jonathan is the son of who? Very good. Uh, in chapter 14, verse 6, look there. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, let's go over to the Philistines and maybe God will deliver them into our hands. And his armor bearer said, I love this. I'm with you to do whatever God shows you to do. And I love that armor bearer. 
And Jonathan and his armor bearer, they find a strategic location between two rocks. They climb on their hands and knees with the sword in hand, and they come against the Philistines, and they're mopping up the floor with the Philistines. And Jonathan is whacking and walking and whacking them, and the armor bearer is coming behind and just kind of stabbing them and finishing them off. This is a great scene. I love it. It's bloody. It's like Braveheart. I don't know why I just love that scene. I just do. It reminds me of Braveheart. And this attack on the Philistines caused the other Israelis to join the battle because, as I told you the last time, faith is contagious. And at this point, faith is gaining momentum in Israel. And it started with two guys, and the Philistines are on the run. Well, on the day of the battle, when the men should be strong and ready to fight, chapter 14, look at verse 24. King Saul came up with a bright idea to call a fast and pronounce a curse on anyone who eats. And the last time I gave you four reasons why calling the fast was wrong. Were you with me? I told you number one. Anybody know? Let me see if you did your homework or if you took some notes. Uh, Number one, the fast was wrong because it was the wrong what? Focus. Look at your notes. (laughs) Number two, the fast was wrong because of it was the wrong what? Motive. Very good. Number three, the fast was wrong because it was the wrong sense of authority. And last but certainly not least, the fast was wrong because it was the wrong punishment. We talked about that in chapter 14. And by the way, for those of you that don't know, we record all the teachings from the pulpit here at Calvary Chapel. So if you missed uh, that teaching in chapter 14, uh, you can pick it up. Look at verse 27 in chapter 14. It tells us that Jonathan had not heard about the fast his dad called. And so Jonathan put a stick out and he ate some of the honey. Remember? And one of the people told Jonathan what his dad had said. And Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. Look at verse 29 of chapter 14. Because Jonathan knows the last thing you need is a growling stomach when the enemy is coming for you. Jonathan knew on a day when the enemy is coming for you, you need to be strong. But because of a lack of wisdom on Saul's part and and legalism, he hindered the people from tasting the honey. And the men who were weak... And their countenance was down, and they were exhausted and worn out, and they can't fight. And Jonathan ate the honey, and his countenance was brightened. And Saul wanted to kill Jonathan because he broke an oath. And in verse 45 of chapter 14, the people said, Saul, that is enough. We have had it with your leadership, essentially. Not one hair on Jonathan's head is going to be touched. Now, in our study, we learned, if you've been with us, we've learned that Saul's relationship with God was form over substance. You might want to write that down because I think it kind of sums up Saul's relationship with God. It was form over substance, what I look like versus what is really there, what uh, is, is really a part of his life and of his heart. Form over substance. It was about image, not devotion to God. And we've seen the weakness of Saul, pride, legalism, insecurity, trusting in his own strength. But tonight we're going to see what I might call the number one weakness that actually caused them to lose the kingdom. And you know what that is? It's, re- it's rebellion. It's rebellion. I titled this sermon, The Ruin of Rebellion. First Samuel chapter 15, saints, we'll pick up in verse 1. If you're looking at First Samuel 15 in verse 1, I need you to say, I'm looking at it. Samuel also in verse 1. 
said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Underline verse 2. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel and how he ambushed him on the way when he came up out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly Underline this, utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman and infant and nursing child and ox and sheep and camel and donkey. Stop right there, saints. Give me your attention. You know by now that Saul is a political leader of Israel. Let me have your attention. Look at me, please. You know by now that Saul is the political leader of Israel, and Samuel is a spiritual leader. And God gave Samuel a message, and the message is clear and to the point. God told Samuel, listen, God told Samuel, very simple, tell Saul, I want you to kill all the Amalekites. Now, remember I told you in the Greek language, all means all, and come on, help me. All means all, and that's all, all means, right, in the Greek language. Well, listen, in the Hebrew language, all means all, and that's all, all means. Write that down, okay? All means all, and that's all, all means in Greek and Hebrew, all. And God says, Saul, I want to punish all the Amalekites for what they did to Israel, Look at verse 3. God said, utterly destroy them. Utterly destroy them and all that they have. Man, woman, infant, nursing, child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Wipe them out completely and don't leave a trace. Now, I don't think God would have, could have been more specific. And this is frighteningly complete annihilation. Frighteningly. Complete annihilation and total judgment against the Amalekites. Now the question is, what did the Amalekites do to Israel to make God so angry? Well, verse 2 tells us what they did. How they, look at verse 2, how they ambushed them on the way when they came up from Egypt. That's what they did. Now listen, it was 400 years before this time. When Israel was leaving Egypt, the Amalekites were the first people to attack the Israelites while leaving Egypt. Not only did they attack the people, but they did it in a despicable way. And it's spoken about in two places in the Old Testament. You got a pen? Write it down. Exodus chapter 17. I have it for you on the screen. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of the altar, what, saints? The Lord is my banner. It's for you on the screen. I need to hear everybody. And Moses built an altar and called his name, what? The Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And then, listen, the point is repeated. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming up out of Egypt, how he met you on the way, 
and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear. When you were tired and weary and he did not fear God, therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving to you to possess as inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. Now listen, I'm sure you all remember that great theological training movie, The Prince of Egypt. And uh, <laughs> learned a lot of theology from that movie. It was a great movie, The Prince of Egypt. It, was a great, it really was a great movie. And you know the story in the Bible. The people are leaving Egypt. And when leaving the nation, um, when leaving the nation of e- Egypt, the nation of Israel, they're weak and they're vulnerable. And in the rear, according to Deuteronomy, we just read it, they're weak and vulnerable. They get the scene. There's this great procession walking out of Egypt. And at the end of the line are the kids and the lame and the sick and the weak and people in wheelchairs and crutches and people with heart problems and IVs. And without provocation, listen, the Amalekites attack the people of Israel and they attack the weakest and most vulnerable of the people. And get this. And get this, they did this in the presence of God. How so? Because we are told that as they were leaving Egypt, that God was leading them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, or a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So therefore, when the Amalekites attacked the people of Israel, they did it in the presence of God. And this was big news at that time. The Red Sea had parted. The Egyptian army had been destroyed. And so these people sinned against incredible light with incredible cruelty. And they attacked God's people for no reason, no other reason than to kill and to rob. And God never forgot it. And God, according to Deuteronomy, we just wrote, read it, told the people of Israel, don't you ever forget it. And God never forgot it. And can I tell you something? God hates it when the strong and the mighty take advantage of the weak and the helpless. And especially when the weak and the helpless are his people. God hates it when the strong take advantage of the weak. Well, you might be thinking, phew, good thing I'm not an Amalekite. Well, listen, you don't have to be an Amalekite to do this. You can take advantage of the weak in the workplace. You can take advantage of people in the weak in relationships, emotionally and and, and mentally. You can take advantage of people economically. For example, you know someone needs money for something, and so they need to sell something, and so you just get it for a song because you know you can, because they need the money. That's not the Lord. We need to be fair. That's why I say amen. Amen. We need to be fair and not take advantage of people. God doesn't like it when people take advantage of other people. And God never forgot this. God never forgets a sin against his people. Keep in mind, this happened 400 years ago from this time. That would be like if during the colonial days there was a dispute between Ben Franklin and George Washington and all of a sudden God showed up and told President Barack Obama to go take judgment on the people of Fairfax, Virginia. 
or Boston. Get the CD. It would be like that. So the sin against Israel was a long time ago, and God still held it against the Amalekites and is telling us in this story to teach us a very important principle, and that is this. Write this down. Time does not erase sin. And I really believe that people believe just because some time had gone by that God forgets about sin. I think of Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Did y'all hear me? God doesn't forget about sin. It's almost like your mom. Your mom, she don't forget about sin either. (laughs) Don't ask me why I went down this path from that thought. I'm, I'm, I'm typing this out, and I'm, all of a sudden my fingers went just like your mom. I went, who put that there? Because <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, and my mom would say, and you moms know what I'm talking about, because moms got it. Y'all got a memory like an elephant. And, and, um, which, how do people know an elephant has real memory? <laughs> I'm sorry, I know this is a bunny trail, but I just really just thought of that right now. How do people know that? Anyways, um, I remember when I was a kid, my mom, you know, you would do something like when you were out, and some of y'all know what I'm talking about, because I'm from the old school, y'all, see? Nowadays, you don't spank Johnny, because you might hurt his psyche. (laughs) You know, they say, psychologists say, don't spank Johnny, because you might hurt his psyche, and y'all know what I say. I say, tear that psyche up. (laughs) I say, tear that psyche up. It's like, you know, nowadays, you know, you don't, you don't spank Johnny because, you know, you might hurt his psyche and all that. Listen, my mom would, like, knock you out, okay? <laughs> hurt your psyche, you will be picking yourself up off the floor. You say something, all of a sudden, you go, how did I get down here? <laughs> Oye, who knows what I'm talking about? Okay. So, <laughs> my mama, or, or she would cut you a break and throw you a bone and say, listen, when we get home, <laughs> y'all know what I'm talking about. When we get home, I'm going to tear you up. I remember, that, I remember those days, and I'd be thinking, I hope we never go home. <laughs> I, I hope we never, 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 ever go home. You know, when you're a kid, you make stupid wishes. You know what I mean? You're like, I don't ever want to go home again. Never, never, never. Want to go home. And so then you get home, and then and on the way home, then you have good behavior because then you think, oh, well, you know, if I'm nice enough, then she'll forget. So then you're like really, really nice. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You know, you do everything right. And then as soon as you get in the house and you just get the, all right, mom, you know, I'm going to clean my room and everything like that. She go, you know, oh, you remember I took, before you clean your room, go get the bell. Because I have a psyche to deal with. <laughs> but you forgot. Moms don't forget. They don't forget. And God doesn't forget. And we need to understand something. God looks at time. And I've told you this before. If you've been here at Calvary Chapel, you know. God looks at time and life different than we do. God doesn't judge a nation or a people by the clock or a calendar. God measures time morally, not by the clock. 
And the only reason God hasn't judged sin in our world is because he's giving people time to repent. John chapter 6, 16, verse 9, write that verse down, look it up later. God is going to judge people because they don't believe in Jesus. But for right now, he's giving people time. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, memory verse or despises the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to what? Repentance. Even in this judgment toward the Amalekites, we see the patience and the grace and the long-suffering of God, because remember, it's been 400 years. God allowed 400 years for them to repent, and they didn't. And God isn't being cruel and harsh and censorious. God said, enough is enough. Time is up. God knows what they're going to become later. Now, here's a question. Why does God want Israel to bring judgment? Why doesn't he just do it himself? He's very capable, you know. God could bring judgment without our help. Say amen. amen. He could have rained down fire from the sky. He could sweep them all away in a whirlwind. He could send an earthquake and, and, and the earth would swallow them up. God could let go of the oceans and they would meet and there would be the biggest, greatest tsunami of the world and drown the world. Why bring Israel into it? Well, I'll tell you something. Truthfully, I really don't know the answer to that, but I'll tell you this. It could have been a test of obedience for Saul. It could have been that the Amalekites attacked Israel and God wants Israel to attack them. Military attack for military attack. Same back at you. That's consistent with Scripture. God usually makes the judgment fit the crime. This could be just one of the unknowabilities of God. We don't know. The thing I want you to see is, for Israel, there's no chance of defeat. Did you hear me? For Israel, there's no chance of defeat. This is God's war. And God is simply asking for obedience. And can I tell you something? In the life of the Christian, there's no chance of defeat. We cannot be defeated. And the Bible tells us in 1 John 4, 4, memory verse, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in where? The world. You know that. Well, look at verse 4. We got to move on because we got a lot to cover here. Look at verse 4. If you're looking at verse 4, say amen. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered. You're going to love chapter 15. Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Talim. 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Ag Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Why y'all tracking with me? This is a problem. And utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen, the fattening. Is that what they were told to do? Phew. 
save the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatling, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Let's stop right there. Saul gathered the people together and numbered them, and then came to the city of the Amalekites and hung out in the valley. And then Saul warned, did you get that? Warned the Kenites to leave the city. Now the Kenites were descendants of, would anybody happen to know this? Moses' father-in-law, anybody know his name? Jethro, very good. The Kenites were descendants of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And I think of, in this scene, I think of dropping flyers like, um, you know, when, when, when a town or, or a city is about to be destroyed, uh, aircrafts would go over that city and drop flyers telling people that they need to evacuate. And that's what I kind of see here, this dropping of flyers from an a- aircraft before the bombing of the city. So Saul warned them to leave the Kenites because the Kenites were nice to Israel when they left Egypt. Interesting, he was careful to protect the Kenites, but not careful to obey God's will. It makes me think of these people who are careful to protect the bald eagle and the baby seal, but they have no problem with abortion. You have been listening to Salt and Light, a radio outreach ministry of Pastor Rodney Finch and Calvary Chapel Cary, located in Apex, North Carolina. Join Pastor Rodney Monday through Friday at this same time. For information regarding service times, you can contact us at 1-800-293-0923. That's 1-800-293-0923. You may listen to today's broadcast in its entirety by visiting the Media Library on our website at cccarry.org. We would like to thank you for tuning in to Salt and Light and pray that you have been blessed. Until next time, may you be salt and light.